0: Welcome to Anker Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, supporting sponsor of this podcast. And today, if you are a new listener, welcome. And I hope that uh, you're excited uh, to listen to what we have to talk about today, which is a return to one of my favorite of our series here at OncoPharm, the foundations of Oncofarm. We're talking about bread and butter chemotherapy drugs. Uh, we also talk about landmarks in Oncofarms, some of our landmark clinical trials, as well as current events uh, and new drug approvals. But today we're talking about carboplatin, also known as Paraplatin, the brand name, and CBDCA, which is an abbreviation for the, the full chemical name. So uh, carboplatin, similar to cisplatin, uh, works by forming DNA adducts, so part of carboplatin will bind, especially to the N7-appearing base pairs. Now, where where carboplatin is different than cisplatin mechanistically is that it is a more stable structure, so it's slower to undergo aquation or to activate. In fact, it's 100 times slower. And because of that, you need a a lot higher concentration of carboplatin for the same uh, DNA platination, How much platinum is added to the D to the DNA? So, if you were to think of the cisplatin molecule, if you took like four two by fours and made a, a square, and you just affix those two by fours with a single nail, uh, that's basically cisplatin. Because if you drop that two by four, that square on the ground, it's going to fall apart. Cisplatin is very reactive, very equates very very quickly to this um, reactive, and I think it's a um, an electrophilic species is, is what you would call it, but a very reactive intermediate in and that, that binds to DNA and lots of other stuff like kidneys. Now Carboplatin is more like uh, a couple 2x6's that are attached with screws and then there are uh, joints attached uh, inside the joint uh, like dowel rods and there are corner braces. Carboplatin is much more stable much slower to activate and that was on purpose the drug was developed to be more stable in hopes of decreasing its nephrotoxicity since cisplatin is so nephrotoxic. So, a little bit of history. Uh, CARBO was approved by the FDA here in the United States in 1989 and it was, I would call it, logically developed to help minimize nephrotoxicity. Entered a phase one clinical trials in 1980 and the phase two dose was determined to be 300 to 400 milligrams per meter squared. And if you're familiar with carboplatin, you know that we do not dose it this day in milligrams per meter squared, and we'll talk about why that is. And in those clinical trials, it was determined that the dose of limiting toxicity was mild suppression, especially thrombocytopenia, which is a question I was asked as a PGY2 resident, and I guessed the answer, and my preceptor knew that I guessed. And then we talked about that. Uh, where is carboplatin used? Well, you know, like where isn't it used? You know what I mean? Um, so from a hematologic, and I'm probably going to miss because it's used everywhere. From a hematologic standpoint, it's used in non hodgkins lymphoma and in in rice and in ice regimens. Uh, it's, it can be used as a conditioning agent for hematopoietic stem cell conditioning. Now, um, when we talk about the toxicity profile later, you will not hear the cisplatin side effects that we tend to talk about, like uh, nephrotoxicity and neuropathy. At the dose is used as conditioning agent with carboplatin. You could see some of those toxicities. From a subtle tumor standpoint, it's a bread-and-butter backbone agent for lung cancer, both small cell and non-small cell lung cancer. For germ cell tumors uh, like testicular cancer, even a one-time really high dose is used for some, for some seminoma testicular cancers. Uh, ovarian cancer, bladder cancer, triple negative breast cancer, uh, breast cancer in general. So a lot of uses... Um, I guess it's not used in leukemias. You don't see it used in leukemias. Um, But otherwise, very, very uh, broad spectrum of activity and and fairly well tolerated, which is why you see it used a lot in non-curable or metastatic settings. Now, the typical dose of carboplatin kinda comes in one or two doses. So an AUC of five or six, and that's area under the curve, so an AUC of five or six, given every three weeks intravenously, or an AUC of two given weekly with concurrent radiation. Now, again, the dosing originally was 300 to 400 milligrams per meter squared, uh, IV every three weeks, but it was noted that patients with decreased renal function had greater toxicity, and this originally led to uh, to an equation um, developed not by Calvert, but somebody else looking at the degree of myelosuppression suppression and adjusting the dose based off of that, but then Calvert AH et all in JCO 1989 published uh, their group's work um, using a three-step process and chromium-labeled 51 chromium-labeled EDTA, which has a similar clearance in the urine as creatinine, uh, to refine and develop the Calvert equation for dosing uh, for dosing carbon platinum. So the way they did the study is they gave they basically did uh, like a radio labeled EDTA to measure GFR and then use that looking back at patients who had cisplatin and looking at what was their actual exposure to carboplatin and it correlated very closely with renal function. They determined that carboplatin is excreted almost 70% entirely renal and the other 30% being non-renal. Then that led to step two where they tested an equation. The equation is slightly different than the, than the actual Calvert equation we have. When they tested their initial equation, they made some further refinements. And in step three, they tested uh, the Calvert equation, which is what we have today and we use, which is the dose to be delivered in milligrams equals the desired area of the curve. So like if AUC5. So the dose of milligrams equals 5, AUC5, times, parenthetically, their GFR plus 25. So the way this works is that the basically area under the curve timed clearance. And GFR accounts for about 75% of the drug's clearance, and non-renal is 25. So that's why it's GFR, which is 75% of the drug's clearance, and then 25 for the non-renal. So it's a very... Um, elegantly derived, but ultimately a simple equation. So let's say you have somebody with a GFR of 75. Well, 75 plus 25 is 100, and you're doing you want a desired AUC of 5. So 5 times 100, the dose will be 500 milligrams. So relatively simple. Now. Uh, As you probably know, EDTA uh, chromium-label scans are not commonly done or not maybe even available at most places. So what do we do? We estimate GFR using the Cockroft-Gold equation. And there's actually um, a survey done by the Hematology-Oncology Association HOPA, back in 2000, maybe in 2009 is when the survey was done. But the results are in the newsletter in 2010, and the vast majority of folks uh, do use Cockroft-Gold to estimate GFR. There's also the Jaleef equation, which was really commonly used. In GOG, in GOG, the Gynecologic Oncologic Group, so for ovarian cancer, we do use a lot of uh, a lot of carboplatin. Now, despite how simple that formula is, there are still some controversies. Uh, the first one being how do you actually measure creatinine, and this is a relatively maybe recent controversy. And that uh, back in, when did the FDA send this thing out? 19, 2010, uh, I believe it was, the, the FDA sent uh, kind of a dear doctor layer to folks. So, what had happened is labs started moving to a new uh, method for, uh, for assaying and measuring creatinine to, to uh, isotope dilution mass spectrometry, so or IDMS. And what that did uh, overnight is it shifted uh, kind of these creatinine values. So, the most noticeable way, if you were looking at your labs, so like when I was a student in pharmacy school, creatinine would be reported as 1.0, 1.1, 2.3 to one decimal. Well, the IDMS method allowed a more accurate assessment of creatinine, so now instead of 1.1, the creatinine might read 1.07. But in addition to that, creatinine values were lower than what had previously been measured with the old assay. So, what this led to, if the creatinine is lower, you will get a higher GFR. With a higher gfr you get a higher carboplatin dose and in clinical trials they were seeing higher rates of toxicity from carboplatin auc5 than what they had seen in in 20 years before so this led to a letter from the fda guiding everyone to cap the gfr at 125. now as i was told in training ask any nephrologist to tell you that the kidneys can't go any faster than 120 mL per minute so 125 seems reasonable now there is some some new data that I have uh, heard of and read abstracts on, but I actually read the article, so take this for what you will, um, that you can have GFRs that are actually higher than 120 or 125, especially in hyperdynamic folks in the ICU and younger patients. So that was kind of the first controversy that I wanna talk about is how we actually measure creatinine and why this led to the capping of 125. Now, before the FDA said that, some people would empirically cap their GFR at 25, or at, sorry, at 120. Uh, the next question, is caffeine GFR appropriate, as I just alluded to? Now, let's say you have a 17-year-old uh, male with testicular cancer and say uh, it's a muscular football player, weighs 90 kilograms, uh, has a crayon of 0. 0.8. You're going to get a GFR above 125, and maybe that GFR is accurate. Um, and this testicular cancer, and you're going to give a, a high dose of carboplatin, say an AUC is seven times one dose. Probably don't want to underdose and risk your chance for a cure. So I think some testicular cancer advocates uh, in the oncopharm community would say, "No, we don't cap for carboplatin. We do what the calculation says because that's the way they did it in the original study." And I think that that's fair. But let's say you have a 63-year-old female uh, that weighs 120 kilograms and has a creatinine of 0.5. You're going to get a creatinine clearance calculation above 125. Is that person's kidneys really working that well? Probably not. So this adds to a controversy of what do you do in this situation? Do you use an ideal body weight? Do you use an actual body weight? Do you round up the creatinine to 0.8, 0.7, or to 1? Uh, Those are a lot of questions that have to be considered. There's really not a great consensus on what to do. And then the weight that I just alluded to, what weight do you use in calculating uh, creatinine clearance with Cockroft Galt? So... I'm sure you guys are all familiar with the equation from Cockroft Galt, nephron back in, like, 79 or something. But it's 140 minus age times weight divided by 72 times the same creatinine, and that's multiplied by 0.85 in female. If you plug in an age of 20 with a creatinine of 1 and a weight of 72, it's 140 minus age divided by creatinine. It's just 140 minus age if the creatinine is 1. That's where the equation comes from, from the belief that after age 20 your GFR peaks at 120 and goes down by one mil per minute per year. And since most people have a weight of about 72 and a creatinine of one, 140 minus age is pretty darn accurate uh, for a lot of people. So that's where the equation came from. Now, since creatinine comes from muscle, if you are obese and you are not grossly overweight because of bulgy muscles on under Schwarzenegger style, then your creatinine is probably, or that weight is not contributing to creatinine and you probably will overestimate GFR. And we also know, especially now in the new era with the IDMS, that you might get some very low creatinines in some older folks that are not accurate. So what do you do in these folks? Well, with obesity, one thing you do is use an ideal body weight or an adjusted body weight. Um, there is, you know, not great guidance on what to do, but we do have some data showing that if you use actual body weight in obese people, they do have more toxicity. What I have commonly seen is an adjusted body weight of 40%. So you take their total body weight divided by their, or you subtract their ideal body weight from their actual body weight, multiply that by 40%, and then add that back to their ideal body weight. Now, what do you do if you have a really low creatinine, say a creatinine of 0.4? Well, I kind of think is this a curable malignancy, and if so, is it possible to get a 24-hour urine to get a more accurate? Uh, assessment of creatinine clearance. Uh, if it's palliative, I don't really have as much issue running up to creatinine uh, of say of one. And what I'm kind of advocating for here is a patient-by-patient basis, which a lot of pharmacy and oncology pharmacy managers would would not like, because um, if you read any of the writings about carboplatin dosing, you'll see that we need consensus, uh, we need to have uniform standards. Um, my personal belief is to do what's best for the patient, so I tend to individualize things uh, as as I come across these things. Uh, just as since there is no great guidance, this is what the protocol is set to do. So if you don't know what to do, the easiest answer is for this patient in this regimen, what did they do in the protocol if you can find it? So for the CarboTaxane, um, um, sorry, uh, Empower 150, which is Carboplatin, Etoposide, and Etizolizumab for Extensive-Stage Small Cell Lung Cancer, you go to that paper at New England Journal of Medicine and you go in the supplementary material, you can find the protocol. And what they did in that study was actual body weight, for calculating creatinine clearance. They didn't use an adjusted body weight. Uh, and they rounded the creatinine to 0.8 in people at a very low creatinine. And they instituted the 125 mil per minute cap as, uh, as advocated by the FDA. So that's what uh, their protocol said to do. So you can take that as a loose um, approximation maybe of uh, not best practice, but current practice or standard of care. So using actual body weight, um, you know, having a, a floor, of creatinine of 0.8 and then using that 125 mL mm per minute cap. Now the NCCN guidelines uh, say to consider adjusted body weight, like 40% adjusted body weight, and to consider a 0.7 creatinine uh, minimum. So there's no real consistency on what to do. But I will say, if you've got someone with metastatic lung cancer and you get and they have they're overweight and you have a low creatinine, you're going to get a really high creatinine, and that you probably should I would definitely consider using an adjusted body weight in those people. Um, <clears throat> what I have seen a lot of physicians do is not look at so much at. Um, they, they sometimes will will consider changing how they calculate creatinine clearance to get a, an absolute dose of carboplatin. But um, uh, I would always say to uh, you know to to try and estimate the best uh, GFR that you can and use that for your dose, uh, and not look at the, the total dose because you can have somebody get an euc a UC of five, uh, and that dose could be two hundred or it could be five hundred milligrams depending on their kidneys. Now, despite the controversies in measuring creatinine and how did which weight to use to estimate GFR, we should take some stock and just take a big, take a step back 30,000 foot view that this is a much better way of dosing copper than just uh, milligrams per meter squared the way it used to do. So that's one of the reasons copper is so well tolerated is that we have, you know, dosing is individualized. It's one of the first individualized drugs, like personalized medicine started with Calvert almost in 1989. Um, so, uh, you know, when we're debating, should we use an adjusted versus, you know, 40% or 30% adjusted body weight, it probably doesn't make that big of a difference in the grand scheme of things, uh, is my opinion. So um, it's a big improvement to have this, you know, kind of renally guided dose adjustment for every single patient it really uh, is, uh, is amazing. And it's the only drug that we kind of have that we do that. As far as toxicities, as we move, as, we, as I literally turn the page on the notes for this, um, as I mentioned, the dose limiting toxicity is thrombocytopenia, but you do see a fair amount of leukopenia anemia, so it's broadly myelosuppressive, but more so to the megakaryocyte precursors or megakaryocytes. It is, you know, you can see the, the hallmark toxicities as we know. Uh, from a nausea and vomiting standpoint, um, it's always been considered moderately emetogenic, Uh, And now suddenly some guidelines have it as highly emetogenic. And and carboplatin did not become more emetogenic in the last five years. But what did happen is that there were two studies done uh, with people with carboplatin receiving AUC of four or more. uh, And they were given a neurokinin-1 antagonist compared to a group without a neurokinin-1 antagonist. And the NK1 antagonist group did better. So, for instance, the ASCO guidelines do now have a section of highly emetogenic folks with a carbo AUC of four or more, suggest they should receive an NK1 antagonist. Now, those two studies cited in the ASCO guidelines um, had control groups that did not have the standard of care for dexamethasone. So, um, and then maybe that's a, a, an idea for a future episode, but they had dexamethasone poor control arms, I would call them. Um, so, I, it's maybe pseudo highly emetogenic. Uh, if you can't give them the, the, the correct doses of dexamethasone, than carboplatin, see 4 and above, would be highly metagenic. If you can use the dex, um, uh, moderately metagenic is what it always used to be. Um, so, But obviously less nausea and compared to cisplatin. Um, and then kind of the interesting toxicity here are the hypersensitivity and allergic reactions to carboplatin. Uh, and this is, can be an anaphylactic reaction, reaction with flushing, shortness of breath, chest tightness, blood pressure pressure changes, tachycardia. Now, if you're receiving less than six doses, the incidence is about one percent. And so think about how we do ovarian cancer, six cycles of carboplatin paclitaxel. How do we do lung cancer? Four to six cycles of platinum doublet, okay? So for the first round of chemo, so to speak, and when I say round, I'm talking four to six cycles, very few anaphylactic and hypersensitive reactions to carboplatin. But once people receive seven or more doses that incidence of hypersensitive reaction goes up to 27. percent So the classic scenario where you see a carboplatin uh, sensitivity reaction is a woman with ovarian cancer who gets uh, with advanced ovarian cancer gets her six cycles of carboplatin paclitaxel, and then say a year, 15, 18 months later they have recurrent disease platinum sensitive because it's beyond six months from their last treatment. So appropriately they're retreated with carboplatin. And uh, paclitaxel, and then around the second or third cycle of their second go-around with platinum is when you see that hypersensitivity reaction. Now, for whatever reason, where I trained, all these there there are several published desensitization protocols. Because just because someone has uh, an anaphylactic reaction with carboplatin, same thing with oxaloplatin. there are desensitization protocols that are pretty well done that you can do in these folks. And for whatever reason, uh, when I trained. Uh, during residency, and uh, two nights a month, had to work from 5 to 9 in the central pharmacy uh, operations uh, rotation sort of thing. There were always carboplatin desensitizations that came in at night. I don't know why these gynox surgeons, all their carboplatin desensitization had to be done at night, but that's when they happened. Alright, so that's you know, those are the high points on carboplatin. Uh, it's an important drug. It's commonly given. Man, it's like the ceftriaxone of oncology. We give it uh, a lot for a lot of different reasons, and it's pretty well tolerated, but certainly does have its toxicities that we need to be aware of, uh, but vastly safer compared to, to cisplatin. So that is what I have to talk about today. Uh, and remember, uh, I just want you guys all to know, I appreciate you listening. Uh, you can follow me on on Twitter at PharmDitinib, podcast is at OncoFarmPod on Twitter as well as Instagram at OncoFarmPod. Feel free to rate, review us five stars. Give us a good review. You can listen on uh, Google devices, uh, Android devices, sorry, uh, Apple devices, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you can get podcasts, you can listen to this podcast. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.